And we move next to the book and he reads Persuasion. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm going to assume by when this episode drops, Valentine's Day is already in the past. But happy Valentine's Day to all you ladies out there and to the gentlemen. I hope that you enjoyed your Valentine's Day or Valentine's Day, as I called it when I was a little kid. Brandon, <coughs> hey. this is Ghost Brandon. Why don't you introduce the other person? He is Beastmaster Funky Town himself. Shoelaces untied. Hair did up nice. Styling, baby. So, three days and days gone by. Yes. Needle pulling thread. Yeah, pulling we're thread. together now. Yeah. We're here. All right. Feel that energy. What baggage did you bring? Wait. To this episode. To this episode. <laughs> <laughs> the baggage of last episode. Yeah. Where we discussed structure and style in Jane Austen. Let's talk about poetry. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> you want to talk about poetry with me, Nathan? Yeah. Let's talk about poetry. It was the misfortune of poetry, quote, this is a quote from Jane Austen. It was the misfortune of poetry to be seldom enjoyed safely by those who enjoyed it completely, semicolon, and that the strong feelings which alone could estimate it truly were the very feelings which ought to taste it but sparingly. Jake, true or false, and why or why not? True. 100% true. I love that quote. It's a throwaway thing at the end of a chapter where Anne's talking to uh Benwick, I believe he is. Benwick. Yeah. Is that his name? Benwick. So. Or yeah, is Benwick. it Benwick? Benwick. 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 Whatever his name is. Guy that marries Louisa. Yeah, the guy that marries Louisa. Benwick. And it's hundred percent true. And she in a sentence or two or a compound sentence uh accurately sums up all that is wonderful and dangerous about poetry. Basically we could quit the podcast, then instead of putting out hundreds of episodes of the booking, we could just put out that sentence. Yeah. Yeah, that sentence is spot on. Every rant that we've ever given, you could probably boil it down and it's contained somewhere. In in that one sentence. In that beautiful sentence. Yeah, I mean, Chapter seven. perfectly explains why. So she's got to have, it's going to be towards the end of volume one. Yeah, it's chapter 11. And it'd be like on the last page of it. Yep. I think it's really helpful when you're looking at this. So it's not like she's just damning poetry in general. It's this very romantic and romanticized ideal of poetry at the time, right? Yeah, we made that connection when we were doing Mary Shelley and you were talking about the romantic period. And you pointed out that Lady Jane, our Jane, was... Um, what's it called? Current? What's the word that I want? The she was alive. Contemporary. Contemporary with Byron and Keats and Shelley and all those clowns. So he showed himself intimately acquainted with all the tenderest songs of the one poet and all the impassioned descriptions of hopeless agony on the other. And so you realize that with the romantics and poetry at the time, what you would have thought of as poetry, Byron, Shelley, Keats, Wordsworth, these guys, it was all about intense emotion felt and then expressing your intense emotions through what you see in nature and all this sort of stuff. And so when she's saying that the strong feelings, which alone could estimate it truly, were the very feelings which ought to taste it, but sparingly, she's, yeah, she's, what she's doing is she's, like you said, where she's damning 
the people who all think they're amazing because they like Dostoevsky. So if somebody's listening and they really like poetry, they should feel bad about that? And they should not. They should only read poetry very rarely. They should. It not depends read. on if they actually really like poetry or think they like poetry. Yeah, because there's a world of people that think they like poetry. They don't get it, but mm-hmm. they want to pretend that they like it. And they would be those who seldom safely enjoy it. It's seldom safely <laughs> enjoyed. <laughs> no, by they, the... those no. Yeah, they seldom enjoy it. Actually, yeah. in real life, I mean, the more easily moved you are by poetry, the more dangerous it becomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The more capable you are of really understanding and being moved by it and manipulated by it, perhaps, yeah. the more dangerous it becomes for you. And so the more in tune you are, the the more da- the less often you should give yourself to it. Yeah. Because you can it's it's just a dangerous art. If it connects if it cuz it can, the point of poetry is to find its way into your soul and six lines or 14 lines yeah, and to change the way that you look at the world in 14 lines with, with a beautiful metaphor, with a, a turn, with a, with a point of view, with the, the beauty of the language, with the way that it just sort of finds its way through your heart to your soul. That's why that we've all here recognized there are certain poets or who are particularly dangerous for us because they have a line on our souls. Mm-hmm. Or some blithering moron who doesn't really understand what's so great about those poets could read them all they wanted. It's like, it's a paradox. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if you don't get it, read it all you want. Right. <laughs> it's, not go- it's not penetrating. But certain poetry, certain poets, they have a way of getting past all of your defenses. That's the point. I mean, the point is to get past your defenses. It's to break the way that you see things and reshape it, remake it. It's to show you a new way of looking at things. And if you're open and sensitive to that sort of thing and can see it or easily moved by it, that's a dangerous thing because your heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the poet and he can turn it wherever he wills. Yeah, it's a powerful craft. That was very, yeah, we were talking about this off mic, but in my youth and even now, if I were to take him up, I'm sure. I'm very susceptible to like W.B. Yeats, mm-hmm. T.S. Eliot with his early stuff. Those are the two for me. And they led me down, especially Yeats, some pretty dark paths emotionally as an undergrad, especially. So these feelings of loneliness and despair and the specialness of art and the beauty of poetry and craft and beauty. and But like the transcendence and the weirdness of it, all those things that if you just give yourself to with Yeats is completely godless. Mm-hmm. But I was, like Jake said, I was just com- caught up in it. So I can still go back and appreciate his craft. I mean, he was an amazing poet. There's no one who really gets at the music of poetry like he does. All poetry is dangerous that way. Yeah. All songs are dangerous that yeah. way. They're all aiming at reshaping you the way that you look at the world and forming how you feel about yeah. the world and about truth and about God and why. Yeah. And even the most trivial things are doing that, working. Dumb people are swayed by the trivial, dumb things out there. And yeah. Smart think, people can be too. Mm-hmm. With Jane Austen, this is early in the life of the novel. Right. So people get confused. You're like, well, doesn't like Tolstoy, don't people like that do th- things that are similar to poetry, like what we're saying here? Yes, of course they do. With yeah. Austen, this is still early in the life of the novel. For her, poetry does a very particular thing. And what poetry does really doesn't happen a whole lot. 
in the novel. Right. Right. She's not, she doesn't really wax poetic. Right. Much. She does kind of A little bit the more in this novel. In this one, she does, ones. which I think is purposeful with her talking about poetry. Mm-hmm. She gives herself some of the poetic feelings. They're like, so a helpful image for me, and this is maybe a silly one. When I think of art like this in my life, I think of Dumbledore's withered hand mm-hmm. when he tried to kill, uh, destroy the, the Horcrux. Horcrux. Yeah. Because he tried to do more than he could. He touched something he shouldn't have touched. Mm-hmm. And there are things like that in my life that have burnt me like that. You know, it gave me, it's given me wisdom past the fact. And so there's a fam- famous example in the bookening history we may actually end up visiting here sometime in the future because I think maybe I'm to a point where I can revisit it. Yes, but, uh, maybe, yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, I know I am. But we won't tell people what it yeah. is. So Ah, we can tell them what it is, right? Yeah, Midnight's Children. Midnight's Children, Salman Rushdie. Uh, but we'll so we'll things, like Salman, things like Midnight's Children, is they, those kind of novels are dangerous. Ishiguro, in a way, is dangerous in the way that poetry is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it would get confusing for a modern person reading this. They're like, well, why is poetry any different than... Well, that's because we've mixed the two. Novels and art kind of And do. not in a bad way. Not in a bad way, no. We've borrowed a lot of beauty from poetry that once made... I think that Keats and Shelley and Byron, for all their wonders and how great they are, are always going to be inferior to Eliot and Yeats because Yeats and Eliot lived in a time when art had matured. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there's a difference with Austin, and we could talk about the whys and all that until I'm sure that would be a... That's another podcast. Though. Well, she, it's almost like she broke off of the development of the novel and achieved perfection within her own little sphere yes. that she created, and no one else has even been able to come close. Yeah, yeah. probably a good example if people really want to kind of understand what I'm getting at here, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare marries the narrative with poetry. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's a lot of, you go to and read Lear, a lot of the way, reasons that thing works so well is just because it has these intense poetic feelings that are happening. And so when you're talking about this, what you're talking about is when the artist is so perfectly directing your feelings mm. that you're kind of out of your own hands and in their hands. And that's why what you love about Austin is that you feel like I was alluding to in the baggage last episode, you feel like you're in safe hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a section like that, that makes you, well, I almost want to say at a certain point you are tempted or I am. And I, everybody knows I love Jane Austen more than almost any person to ever put pen to paper, but it is tempting actually when you actually read Jane Austen and actually see what's there and what's not there to resent that philosophy because there are places where she decides to pull back and not mess with your emotions where you sort of wish she would the classic example is the ending of mansfield park where it's like come on jane give us some emotional catharsis i think we all complained about that last year yeah yeah she Um, comes to the end of the novel once she's basically accomplished her goals once she saw once she solved the problem when she's accomplished her goals she's just like yep okay now let's be really matter of fact and tie up all these loose ends Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Because she's not trying to write a romance. I mean, she just actually isn't all that interested in that. She wants her characters to end happily and to make good matches. And she is interested in that. But getting there is all the fun for her. And then when she reaches, I think, in almost all her novels, even Pride and Prejudice, for me, there's a little bit of a, a sigh at the end where it's just like, okay, I, now I have to wrap this up. And here's what happened. And these people were happy. And these people were miserable. And goodbye. Yeah. But what this also gets at is you have to understand there was a different way that they would have looked at, I think, even human psychology at the time, mm-hmm. where your emotions could be, are, were very distinct from 
these other things like she then requests works of the best moralists, collection of the finest letters, memoirs of characters of worth and suffering. So you would have, they weren't, you would want to develop the one and also develop the other, but the one would be more important than the other. I think with modernists, especially postmodern, we just mix the two so much that everything, emotions just imbues everything. Mm-hmm. We don't really have a distinction between them and even evaluation of one over the other, really. But she would have, to the 1700s mind, you would have wanted to distinguish them very clearly. The emotions would have been subordinate. And for the well-organized mind, you would have had morals that were given to you. And your morals and your principles would have been able to override your emotions. I mean, you see this play throughout all of her novels. People who don't have this ability to control and rein in them, their feelings, like Pride and Prejudice, right. or... Yeah, well, that's the famous example, Pride right. and Prejudice. If you're not able to rein those in, then it wreaks havoc in your life, like Lydia. But if you're able to rein them in through reason and control and principle, Darcy's the shining example of principle, nightly. Mm-hmm. Think of him. And so this is just a little picture of the way that they would have seen the, a, a well-ordered mind and a well-ordered world would have been, and I don't think it's a bad way of looking at it. I think that we've lost something and mm-hmm. just the complete wild abandon we give ourselves to our emotions well brandon how quick come the reasons for approving what we like yeah know what i mean yeah that was my favorite line from this novel probably yeah. actually yeah. like it's it's the one that's reoccurred to me the most um just a simple little how quick come the reasons for approving what we like uh, how quick come the reasons for approving what we like yeah i would really like to watch this violent pornographic movie you know if i watch it i'll be able to talk to my friends at school yeah. About Jesus. I can witness to them. And yeah. that'd be cool. And I got to do something. It's better I do this than be tempted to do something worse. And yeah. my friends are going. And yeah. Yeah. And so I think today we idolize art and we idolize entertainment. We idolize just the feeding of our emotions so much mm-hmm. that this is foreign to us. We can't imagine a world of restraint right. as being beautiful. And this is why the feminists get so confused with Jane Austen is they can't imagine this quiet little woman at her walnut desk with all her nieces and nephews running around her being able to write these wonderful books. But it's because she had a principle of restraint and the beauty of restraint. And so at times she could give herself to things like Byron Mm -hmm. and Shelley, but she would put them in their place. Her whole life was not Shelley-esque. And so she didn't end up like Mary Shelley, which was good for her. She didn't ruin her life. Right. You see the different ways that sort of lifestyle leads you. Well, here's a line to that. She, that being Anne, prized the frank, the open-hearted, the eager character beyond all others. Warmth and enthusiasm did captivate her still. She felt that she could so much more depend upon the sincerity of those who sometimes looked or said a careless or a hasty thing than of those whose presence of mind never varied, whose tongue never slipped. Yeah, the perfect person. Mm -hmm. What she prizes is liveliness of mind in conversation. Right. And so... And that's another thing is I think when we read these books, we often, I, I would imagine, are tempted to see the dialogue as fake, mm-hmm. almost as like just exposition. I go, this is just the place where she wants to be able to tell us a little bit about what she actually thinks about the world. Like mm-hmm. maybe one of the best examples would be a Mansfield Park where they talk about pastors right. in the chapel. You're like, no, that's actually the way they were trained to talk and prize conversation at the time. That's the way... That would have been perfectly natural. Talking is what they did for fun because they didn't have Netflix. And so we're the weird ones. Or it's just, it's maybe unfair to say we're the weird ones, but it's just, it's a cultural, it's a real cultural difference. 
And it's a loss that we have. We don't have conversation like that anymore. Except for on wonderful podcasts. Except, like the yeah, I mean, yeah. We're having it. Where the but not the everybody gets conversation this. is high. Not everybody gets this sort of thing. Well, I actually think I actually think that's a good point. I think a lot of people probably assume that this dialogue is very fanciful, that this yeah. is not how people would talk. And I think we underestimate the intelligence and the wit of the average trained or highborn person. Yeah, you read time. Jane Austen's letters and that's oh, yeah, she just loved full that kind of stuff. Listening and finding people that had this sort of thing and then she'd make fun of people who were bores, just like she does in her novels. But this all goes back to the point that you have to have all this context and all this background to really people understand that give what, her the gapes. Say what? People that give her the gapes. Yeah, I give her the gapes. Mm-hmm. You give me the gapes. Do I give you the gapes? No, you don't give me the gapes. Oh, good. You don't either, Jake. What do you think about? Um, so bad. And so all this to say, to really understand what she's saying about poetry here, mm-hmm. you have to understand the whole context and background. where She's putting poetry, these intense feelings, in its rightful place. And I think that if anybody, I mean, I've seen it in my own life. When you give yourself the one, it can really destroy you. Mm-hmm. If that's all you give yourself to. T.S. Eliot was a miserable man until he became a Christian. Well, and the funny poetry thing about was that... put in his rightful place in his life. He's a fascinating story. If we ever get to do T.S. Eliot, yeah, we will. We we should one of these days yeah. when the when the Cats movie comes out. Yeah, there we go. Yay! Starring T. Swift. He became a happier man for sure. Well, the funny thing is that kids. You know, high school, high schoolers, people like that, they tend to resent when you tell them what you listen to affects you. It'll get into your soul. It'll bypass your default. You give them a speech like the speech Jake gave 10 minutes ago. They tend to really resent that. But then they love music because it gets past those defenses. They prize the very quality that they refuse to see as dangerous, which is just a paradox. They say, I love this stuff because it speaks so directly. I mean, that's what we all love about art is that it speaks directly. But then if you say to someone, well, it's dangerous because they say, eh, it's not that dangerous. It doesn't really speak to me. You know, it doesn't just, really affect it's me. It's just art. It doesn't really affect me. Yeah. And we don't want to think that art can improve us. Right. Because we don't want to be moralistic with our art. Even though every time I read Jane Austen, I feel improved. Oh, she was nothing if not moralistic with her art. Yeah. She's clearly writing these books because she's got a chip on her shoulder towards she's certain people, list, and yeah. she likes other people, and she wants to yeah. hold up what she sees as good and that's, denigrate yeah, what she sees I'm, as bad. And this is one of my. This is a soapbox we have on the bookending. I just don't have any patience for that argument. Uh, the, so the new postmodern arguments against the author and against moralism, I just think is ridiculous because every story you tell is a moral story, whether you like it or not. Art is inescapably didactic. Yeah. Every time any existential nihilist sits down to tell a story, whether they want to be moralist or not, they can't help it. So Wes Anderson is moralistic. So, yeah. But the tone that you have towards life and towards morality and towards these things, it comes through in your work. And so Austin's characters have these conversations because this is the way that, this is the sort of world she pri- the sort of world she loved. Is Jane Austen arrogant? Yes. Does this novel... Will this novel make you more arrogant? Will this novel make you arrogant? I mean, she's <laughs> dividing people up into inferior and superior people. That's oh, well. That's the drama and the humor and the everything of this whole book. It's not about romance. It's about inferior. who's inferior and who's superior. And it teaches Modesty, you. hospitality, vanity, friendliness. But it's actually, but even just something as simple as Sir Walter being married to a woman who was his superior... Or the part where she says, what's Mary's husband's name? Charles? She says, if Charles had married a really good woman, she really could have improved him. But instead, he married Mary, and he did all right. 
Like he was okay. So she really just, she's like, this person is a superior person. This person is an inferior person. This person is a bad person. This person, we can kind we kind of think in terms of good and evil, but when we look at our friends, our acquaintances, you know, people who are all basically not evil, we don't usually think in terms of superior or inferior. Is Jane Austen doing something wrong? I mean, I have a book that I keep at all times where I rank people. Baronetcy? Yeah, the baronetcy system. Yeah. I give people up to 10 sabers down to... Stars. Yeah. Four and a half stars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, four and a half stars, five stars. That's right. Obviously, part of practicing discernment is to understand people's characters and then seeing their immaturities and where they need to be better. Is that your question? What else do you guys want to talk about? I don't know what to talk about about this book. No, here's how I do it. I think that's a fine question. We just need to wrap our head around it. I don't frame it that way, but I do it all the time. And for me, it's as much about uh, trust mm-hmm. as anything. Mm-hmm. It's a judgment about who I can trust with what. It's a, it's a judgment based on character, and it, but it is a categorization, I think, of in some ways, you could think of it as superior or inferior, or having superior qualities or inferior qualities. Mm-hmm. In that sense, I'm always making character judgments about people, and it's often about levels of trust. Um, Trust this man to take care of this woman. Mm -hmm. I trust this man to take care of these children. I trust this woman to love this man or to take care of these children. Do I? I don't know how well that tracks with what Austin does, but... Well, I mean, I do the same thing that you just described. I'm sure most people do that in one way or another. What I found myself, I think, I think maybe my answer to the question, which I hadn't really articulated until just now, is as I've gotten older and wiser, perhaps I can even say, I actually talk more like Jane Austen. In other words, I'm less scared to put those value judgments into articulate terms and say, actually say, this person is an inferior person. I wouldn't, I mm-hmm. probably wouldn't use the word superior and inferior just because they're not. The words that it's not I naturally say, yeah. they're not the parlance of our times or whatever, but certainly not the parlance of Nathan. But I, at this stage in my life, it is, I've found that it is actually much more useful and saves much, a lot of time and allows me to be clear with myself and with others to say in a polite way, this is somebody that I don't trust. This is a bad person. This is an untrustworthy person. This is a foolish this, person. Yeah, this, this is, is a somebody person. Or a... You know, somebody who's not person. capable right. of understanding, you know. And it's not, it's, I don't frame it as, well, they do, they do unwise things. It's actually a value judgment about them as well, an entity. Well, in that sense, it's more like Proverbs. Right. This is, you, you're sorting people and so the wise man and the fool. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's all that Jane Austen does. And it's always a little bit of a slap in the face to just think, oh. She's so dogmatic and simply assigning people to those cat to the category of wise or fool. Right. Sir sir and, and she'll tr- she'll she she is not prejudicial when it comes to class as far as that goes. She'll consign anyone to the category of fool who deserves yeah, the, it. The nobility both of those people were. And she does not uh, this is actually the first book where she really takes somebody of a lesser class and ascribes to them all of the character and virtue of the wise. Yeah, it's not like she always makes the upper crest into fools and the hypocrites. No, more often than not, there's a real difference 
and class shows itself in character. Yeah, I mean, you think Emma, Emma would be the example that comes to mind there where as foolish as Emma is, she has a certain classiness that's real and, and a certain intelligence itself. and perceptiveness that's real. And Harriet, her friend who's low class, Doesn't. is not just low class in her manners, but she is actually of an inferior mind and should be with a simpler yeah, group it, of people. Emma can be Im- immature, but you can expect more and ought to expect more from Emma. Right. That's exactly and, what the badly done Emma scene is all about. Like Emma's, the expectation I, is that Emma should do very well. Yeah, with and what she's, she's capable of it. And when she is humbled, she does. Mm-hmm. Yet the Elliots, there's only Anne, and these humble, humble sailors with character and class from 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 seeming from nothing who have gone out and made their fortunes and have been brave and gallant and they're good men. I love that thing that she says. At the thing she says at the end is one of the most romantic things. You mean like the last she, paragraph? Like the last line, yeah, yeah. Where she says, she gloried in being a sailor's wife, but she must pay the tax of quick alarm for belonging to that profession, which is, if possible, more distinguished in its domestic virtues than in its national importance. That's really nice. And that's it's just so, it's sweet. so sweet. Especially thinking about the fact that she had two brothers. She's talking who, about her brothers. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe about somebody else. Maybe. It's hard not to speculate, isn't it? I I couldn't. Well, we never picked up on this thread from last time. You you said something, and then me and Brandon had, wanted to talk about something else. You said this book made you sad. Why did the, what Or a certain section of it, maybe. What what was that all about? Well, it was we were talking about the section of where she's talking about the virtues of men and women, and she's only giving... She's saying that women love longer. Of course, we all know, because we listened to Brandon's context episode, and his context episodes from days past right that there was a time when jane austen was young and was engaged to be married and for whatever reason it broke off right we don't know anything about it that i'm aware of or any of the reasons or anything right but when you know that and then you see the way that she characterizes anne here as this modest woman who sees very clearly and you come to the end and she has this great beautiful speech about in the hearing of she doesn't quite know that it's in his hearing then she realizes it is but then she doesn't stop in the hearing of the one man that she's ever loved but part of what's sad about it what makes it doubly sad is i'm gonna find i don't know look it up real quick yeah just look it up you know after all of this you know two or three pages of speech she says, oh, I hope I do justice to all that is felt by you and by those who resemble you. God forbid that I should undervalue the warm and faithful feelings of any of my fellow creatures. I should deserve utter contempt if I dared to suppose that true attachment and constancy were known only by woman. No, I believe you capable of everything great and good in your married lives. I believe you equal to every important exertion and to every domestic forbearance, so long as, if I may, may be allowed the expression, so long as you have an object. I mean, while the woman you love lives and lives for you. All the privilege I claim for my own sex, it is not a very enviable one. You need not covet it. Is that of loving longest, when existence or when hope is gone? She could not immediately have uttered another sentence. Her heart was too full, her breath too much oppressed. (laughs) 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 And and he just like, you don't know what happened with this guy. And you don't know where he ended up. And it may be that she broke off with him for great reasons. And he was, she recognized that he was a, one of the villains that she loves right. to to mock, you know. But you read this book and you think, 
I don't know, man. Yep. And then the sweetness of it, instead of giving us a bitter novel mm-hmm. with a bitter ending, she gives us a little bit of, well, the sweetness, the modesty, the humility, and the wish fulfillment. It's all very sweet and sad to me. Well, there was a line in chapter two, I think it was, that I really liked that, well, that made me similarly sad. She had been forced into prudence in her youth. She learned romance as she grew older, the natural sequel of an unnatural beginning. Yeah. Just like, oh, here's a woman writing stories about marriage that become progressively more romantic Yeah, as they go, who, for all we can speculate, learned prudence in her youth. Yeah. And yeah. Romance. Oh, who knows? I mean, who knows what the real story is, yeah. but it's no, useless no, speculation. Mm-hmm. No way to, uh, it's not useless. I'm joking. <laughs> Brandon sneered. He sneered <laughs> contemptuously. I think. You guys are doing my favorite thing. I'm just, I'm joking over here. <laughs> I think this is the most, potentially just the most telling novel. The fact that it is the woman who learned prudence before she learned romance, mm-hmm. who spent all her years accurately judging everybody else's character while knowing she she missed it she missed she lost she and missed then right before she dies she writes her most romantic novel yeah the one novel that to me really feels romantic yeah and we've had a lot of women request this one more than one woman has requested this one and i've had talked to more than one woman who's told me that this is their favorite Jane Austen novel. Really? And I, I have to imagine that's why, because it does have this... There's no question. This longing yeah. this in it that's very moving in a way that I'd say that the others aren't really. Mm-hmm. Well, and think of... The fact is, Austen lived in a day where to be 28, 29, 27 in single was... You're done. Yeah. I mean, that was ten about 10 years from when Jane Austen herself died. Yeah, well, you know... Uh, Mrs. Smith was supposed to be old and she was 30. Right. Right. And supposed to be an old, like the book basically talks about her like she's a decrepit old widow or or, or widow. She's a decrepit old lady. She's 30 years old. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth is shown as being through and she's 30. Right. This is a day when you, you know, what you did was you got married and you got married in that eligible window. And that eligible window is like, 18 to 22 and you got past 22 and you were getting past your prime mm-hmm. I mean, you could get married younger than 18 yeah i mean fanny, fanny emma and elizabeth i don't think any there, of them were over 20 there was a reason for that and the fact is we delay marriage and we put it all off there doesn't seem to be want of gallant men in austin's world of good men men of principle and character i mean they're they're not everywhere but they're there but you think about the times we live in and you think about the plight of a woman in in this world. You mean in 21st century? In the 21st century America. America yeah. You know? And a good man is hard to find. A good man is hard mm-hmm. to find. And every body and everything and all of your life you've been trained to put it off and taught to put it off. And a good man is hard to find. And you know how many of the women that have have requested or hoped for this are women that married late in life or mm-hmm. reasonably late in life, certainly later than any of Austin's heroines. That's I mean, a, I'm thinking of the specific ones and it's across the board, the people that I've talked to that love this novel. I, if they're listening to this, which I assume they are, I hope it's not too painful for me to say they they fit that bill. Yeah. They're, they're either not married. Yeah, I don't know who they are. Older, or they're... We've not talked about it. Right. I don't know who they are, but it's just no surprise. It's what you would expect. Yeah, well, and I'm... 
engaged to be married uh, and I'm in my 30s and this has a sweetness or it has a sweetness I mean you feel at a certain point well I guess that ship sailed yeah and you want to be all noble about it and hold your head high and you know sort of be sarcastic about it as I have as people may have noticed me doing on podcasts of days past but contemplating the future is pretty painful yeah mm-hmm. and you want to think that you haven't actually missed it, missed your shot and it's nice when you haven't it's nice when god is merciful god's merciful you've put your head down and prayed and worked hard and and god looks on you with favor and you're able to approach marriage with the maturity of an Anne instead of i mean fact is the elizabeths and the emmas and the fannies and their men they went through some stuff Mm. Well, that's what I really think is sweet about all of Jane Austen's novels is that you do feel the hand of, I mean, you could say it's the hand of Jane Austen, but it's also sort of within the world of the novel, the hand of God. And there is a very benign providence in these novels that's just moving these characters towards a happy ending. It's really sweet. And it's not like a sleepless in Seattle kind of sweet where it's like the movie, may, the fate of the movie, you know, the random. No, it's actually like there's a force that has to improve and discipline these people yeah. in order to bring them together. I mean, it just simply is God, and it is actually how he operates with his children yeah, I mean, in you know, the world. Thinking of each of us, if you were to take our stories and put them down in a novel, mm-hmm. it would seem like certain things were deus ex machina or whatever. That right. They were some author doing just some crazy move to move our plot along. Mm-hmm. And yet, no, it's just the way that... Your story works, particularly yours right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You have some Jane Austen-y things going on. Yep. So all that to say, I don't think it's unrealistic. I just think it seems unrealistic when it's drawn out into a story like that sometimes for us. Well, the only reason a story is unrealistic, usually the good ones, is because it's stripping away all of the non-story stuff. And so when you isolate it, it feels contrived. Because in real life, there's always a billion things happening. And so the hand of providence isn't quite that clear to us while it's happening as it is when you're sort of standing outside of it. But the fact is, every person's story does actually have that through line in one way or another. Yeah, you don't get the 10 days where she just sat and had, not, had nothing happen or... Right. And had to go Washing her laundry and yeah. doing their daily quotidian stuff. That makes for some pretty boring novel. Yeah. Although I do really People like the part... It. I like the... Yeah. Boo. Modern yeah. art sucks, man. Yeah. That that musical, what was it? It was like some play where you could just walk in at any time and it was playing 24-7. It was just people doing their lives and it wasn't yeah. dramatized. Just like Great stuff. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Alfred Hitchcock said a movie should be life with the boring bits cut out. I yeah. tend to agree. Yeah. Uh, what else? I do really like that section though. I, I, I'm going to, me and Jake were talking about this beforehand. I think it might be worth talking about. I think the stuff, first half of this novel is stronger than the second half. It feels more developed. We were theorizing that maybe she, maybe she was just getting close to death or didn't get a chance. Or just hadn't had time to go back and revise it or whatever. But I, I maintain, (coughs) you know, what, what we said in the earlier episode or what I said that just doesn't feel quite fleshed out. Yeah. It doesn't feel like if I said to you in the car, I'd be tempted you could conv- you could get me to say that this might be one of her laziest novels. 
but I don't want to make her lazy. She's not a lazy person. Underdeveloped or not quite finished, or there's just some things that don't feel quite up to snuff for her own standards of craftsmanship, especially in the second half of the novel. And it's still a great novel in and of itself. It's just that there are some things, and if you press me, I'm not sure I could point to something specific. Maybe the exposition dump with Mrs. Smith would come to mind as a, she could have done a, Find a, more, find a more elegant solution to that. Yeah, and, plot problem. and I feel I feel like she normally would. Yeah, Mr. Wickham proves himself bad by a series yeah, of things. Yeah, you've got all and, yeah. And Mr. Darcy proves himself good by a series of things. And instead we get these very simplistic, just straight up exposition dumps. But in Pride and Prejudice, Emma and Mansfield Park, the very ending is just like they went for a walk and the dude said, I yeah, really like you. Well, that was the thing that, you know, we were talking about earlier. Yeah, she does get tired or she she doesn't have a lot of patience for like aftermath. But in this case, I think it's almost like the first half up to Louisa's cracking her skull is just a perfectly developed Jane Austen novel like yeah. we're used to. Yeah, part one. Then it's like she had a killer ending or maybe her one killer ending of her career is and giving that speech is really moving yeah in, mm-hmm. by the fire or whatever and him overhearing and then so she had that she had a hero heroine that was actually going to have some agency this time yay rah hear me roar so she had like a killer ending she had a killer first half and then connecting the two she's just like and then they went to bath and some stuff happened and yeah people it, were got, jerks it got and really flat it got really flat and really streamlined getting to that ending from the beginning of part two to the end was really flat and streamlined and just sort of linear in a way that she's not. So William Elliot wasn't her most believable villain. He was fine. She she seemed to be maybe not as interested in her fools this time. Yeah. Like usually she'll give like pages of like, and Emma, I even skipped some of it was boring. That lady that talks too much that Emma makes fun of, she gets gets the badly done speech from Knightley. Yeah. Austin made us sit through pages of that lady just like blathering on so we were annoyed by her well you have yeah she wanted you to feel that (laughs) yeah and this time you would do the same thing as we never actually got to see him in action be bad well uh, the bad guy yeah yeah no you never got to see mr elliot be bad never once did he do a bad thing except conspire with what's her face out the window yeah like he did not we did not see a thing uh mrs clay mrs clay what we saw was a guy that we were suspicious of because he twirled his mustache as he came on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't really twirl his mustache, but it was just a really obvious, yeah, setup. And then he was great, and he didn't give you reason to believe he was not great, except that you knew he had to be a villain, right? Because it was determined beforehand that he was going to be a villain. It was going to be a question of how and what was he going to do that was awful. Who was he going to run off with? Was he going to seduce Elizabeth? And was he going to seduce Mrs. Clay? Was he going to, like, what was his deal? And And was he going to be engaged to, was he married to somebody? You know, what else was going on there? And then instead we just sat down with Mrs. Clay and Mrs. Clay is like, here is why he is a, yes, Mrs. Smith. Here's why he is a bad person. Let me count the ways and it will make sense of everything for you. And I haven't been telling you because... And I wasn't going to tell you. In plot, fact, I was going to be like... Not to until yeah, now. Yeah, but now that I have liberty, I'm going to tell you all these... Because I thought if you married him, he might turn out to be okay, I guess. You might have enough influence on him to Even help me. I think he's a monster. Yeah, frankly, if Jane Austen is somewhere kicking the old pigskin, 
hashtag season one and listening to this podcast, I think she'd probably be willing to laugh with us at the contrivance of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that whole thing. Yeah, but and, and then she'd come back and say, yeah, but come on. You knew that wasn't the point. Like, right. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, you knew I just needed to throw some drama in there in order to get to the place where I wanted us to get to. And also, you did kind of resent all the times I made you feel how stupid and painful everybody was for so long. So, I mean, do you want it both ways, really? Right. Like, which way do you want it? I gave you both. Take your pick. But don't criticize me for giving you one and the and the other. Yeah. Number of great novels written by Jake, Nathan, and Brandon, zero. Number of great <laughs> novels written by me, six. She wins. <laughs> so, yeah, far be it from us to criticize. This novel's another perfect gem of literary achievement. But just comparing Austin to Austin, it's because it's fun and interesting. Yeah, no, the, I mean, and that's where I just... I don't care what people say. I think there's just a lack of patience or something. Yeah, I think she actually likes Anne maybe a little bit more than she's like some of her other heroines. And I think she's less, she actually has less patience with the villains in this one. Like Mary Crawford, for example, is a wonderful character. Mary and Henry, is that her brother's name, Henry? Yeah. The Crawfords in Mansfield Park. They're well, such rich, they're the richer nuance, in some ways than you Fanny. You really and, don't know how things are going to turn out with them. Yeah, they're just when you read it, and then she comes back and she tells you. Yeah, Yeah. at the end, it could have gone either way with these people, but it didn't for these reasons. None of that here. Like Mr. Elliot's straight up villain, and I think part of, I mean, maybe to her, there's no real. Once she's described someone as being as vain and foppish as Mr. Elliot, what more does she have to do or say? Yeah, she didn't really leave herself anywhere to go. The first chapter is already like she took him down. Like that's it. Yeah, and so... The image of him just, like, rifling through the book. And, with with so many mirrors, or with so many mirrors in his yeah. bedroom that he... And then his refusal to lend, that lend the house to anyone. I mean, there is a lot of great stuff, but it's just like once... While once, he's being skillfully manipulated by the lawyer. Right, which is great. <laughs> well, we're on the Mr. On the Walter now, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I was confused for a minute. I thought <laughs> we were still talking about William. Oh, yeah, no. I yeah. got lost over here. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out... I think you guys are right... Does anything even really happen with Mr. Elliot? No. no he, just, he has some he, nice conversations with... Like, he sees he her in... Bath. Or no, in um, uh, Lime. Lime. Yeah. And he's handsome and she's beautiful. And it makes Wentworth jealous. Yeah. And then he shows up at Bath and he's awesome. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, I... I... And the only thing to question that is that he blew them off 10 years ago or whatever. But now he's changed. Yeah. And he is perfect in every way. And Anne doesn't trust her character and hasn't put his doesn't trust his character and hasn't put her finger on why exactly just she has an idea there's more to right. this guy than meets the eye he's sort of impenetrable there's something going on beneath the surface that she can't quite get at to be fair though that is the fair though really siri was that what got it get at fair Here's though what i found on the web for did penetrable there's something going on beneath the surface that she can't get out have a look <laughs> <laughs> wow uh-huh. hey siri did penetrable there something going on beneath his surface that <laughs> <it> out. <laughs> but what was going on <laughs> beneath his surface <laughs> there is that great quote she felt that she could so much more depend upon the sincerity of those who sometimes looked or said a careless or a hasty thing than the, of those whose presence of mind never very so the whole point with his character and i don't think it's necessarily a lazy conceit but it's just a conceit that doesn't leave her with much is that he's perfectly impenetrable and 
it's what yeah she needs a suspicious. deus ex machina she needs yeah. uh, somebody who has the key to unlock it for her or he needs to do something right and yeah. she did not want to give time to him doing something and the thing is is and he wasn't and the, maybe part of the point is he wasn't going to do something yeah right the way she defined the character he was not going to do anything right I think except it's the also... right thing 100% of the time because he's that committed to getting what he wants yeah. right I also think it's completely possible, like Jake was saying, that the last part of this book is just unfinished and it's unpolished. Mm-hmm. It's unsanded. Important it's, to remember she didn't publish this in her lifetime. Yeah, and so yeah, I think it's, it's, a fascinating, pu- published. it's a fascinating glimpse into the fact that all things, the the literary- You even said it wasn't named Persuasion, yeah. although- Yeah, her brother named my, it. My goodness. Persuasion called it the, all Elliot's, the place. I mean, it's actually, fine. Which is fascinating because it's not really a- it, it, it would be easier to call the Bennets the Bennets because there's more about the other family members. This one really is more. Yeah, it's Anne's just story more just than, about Anne. And, yeah, and persuasion's a perfect name for it. Yeah, yeah. Her brother saw that she used the word persuaded a thousand times and decided to call it persuasion. He did one of those word cloud yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> That's the <laughs> word. Computer algorithm. But um, and it's perfectly fine to realize that even the great artists of the past. We talked about this with uh, Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. and we've talked about it with Shakespeare. That they all have to. It's a craft. They have to mold and shape. The finished product we get isn't what it all isn't what it starts out like. Well, and imagine so. this is kind of a, maybe a dumb point to make, but I don't think so. I actually don't think this is a. I actually don't think this point I'm about to make is dumb. Go ahead. That's how committed I am to this point. I don't think it's dumb. <laughs> we'll figure that out. They didn't have word processors. You yeah. know how much harder it would be to rewrite and craft and perfect yeah. a novel like this. Oh man, we take so much for granted. I mean, you can just delete. You can just be like, oh, I need some more here. Well, we use Scrivener for our scripts and just right. we can move a scene like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think- We can move an aspect of a scene, a bit of dialogue from one scene to another like that. Yeah. yeah just with, with the click of a mouse. And she can't do any of that. So yeah. if there's something that's a little rushed or, rushed or hasty or not quite there, it's like maybe she was just sick of it. Like she she put all her energy into getting to that ending and maybe her fingers were cramping. Yeah, exactly. Maybe her kids came in and she had to hide some the manuscript in that walnut desk and stupid, uh, what's his face? Austin Lay denied hey, auntie, us. A, auntie, 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 tell me a fairy tale. <laughs> denied us a better ending to this thing. I don't know. No Maxwell Perkins for her. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyways, you can't demand perfection even from the great artists. Right. It's stupid too. And that's where people end up tripping up and thinking that everything Shakespeare ever wrote has to be perfect. Mm-hmm. If you think that there's something weird about Shakespeare, there's something that's off, it's probably because it was, and it wasn't his best day. Maybe he ate some bad haggis or something. Mm-hmm. That's probably what Jane Austen yeah. did, just ate some bad haggis. Yeah. So, I mean, give them, give them a break. They're not superhumans. They're... Yeah, well, and given, you know... What I'm you not, people know that I'm not into the myth of genius. Right. The bookening so. denies the myth of genius, I think. Well, sort yeah. of. But... Well, I mean... Yeah. There's yes and no. Yes, yes, More yes. or less. Yes we, and no. We we do believe in superiority and inferiority. We're not a bunch of communists, no. liberals that think there's yeah. no such thing not, as yeah, Not everybody people. can be Shakespeare. Right. But sh- even Shakespeare wasn't who a lot of people think Shakespeare was. Yes. Yes. That's, a, that's, a, that's, 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 yes. Yeah. <laughs> Our friend Virginia Woolf said that this was a transitionary novel and that- <laughs> Like transitionary into death? What? Well, into becoming a man. Well, no, yeah. She said this novel was transitioning. Yeah, um, <laughs> I wondered why mine had a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Taking hormone pills. She said that this novel felt like 
the phase of an author's career right before they embark on their last phase and everything kind of changes up and that you have like the early stuff. If she had lived, she would have given us a real feminist novel. Yeah, and then Virginia Woolf describes a bunch of novels that she thinks that Austin would have written. That part's dumb. But I did think that one insight was interesting and maybe worth at least exploring or asking whether she's dumb or not. Uh, She just said it felt like Austin's themes are switching away from She's not as interested in some of the old stuff. She's becoming more interested in some other things, but she hasn't quite figured it out. She hasn't quite got there. So that she that's how she would describe the second what, half. What we're describing. What we're what describing. We yeah. She would say, like, she's maybe not as interested in the satire. She's not as interested in the humor anymore. She wants to move into something more melancholy, something more romantic, something painting on a slightly broader psychological canvas. But she hasn't quite figured out how to do it. Virginia Woolf says, and she just asserts like as if she knows, which is the annoying part about this essay by Virginia Woolf, among other things. But she says Jane Austen's next novels very likely would have been more serious, more melancholy. She would have left the humor behind because it's clear that she's just not as interested in the humor anymore compared to one of her early things like Pride and Prejudice. And she's more interested in the the sadness. And It's an interesting theory. I mean, it's the same thing that Brandon says about What's her face? The woman that died at the same age, Flannery O'Connor. You know, you can feel her like gearing up for this yeah. for great works, which she no, never no. had a chance to. This matches give us. what we see with authors, and this goes back to what we were saying about the whole genius myth, and we've mm-hmm. talked about this before. That a lot of times we see that authors mature in their mm-hmm. writing and in the in the in their psychological understanding of the world, and that that's reflected in the progress of their work. Right. So a lot of the best Shakespeare is the last Shakespeare. Right. All the best Dickens is the last Dickens. And you even see it with Dickens, like a lot of his early work is his giddy work, but his later work is his serious work. So yeah, as you get more experience, you write with more experience. I mean, does Virginia Woolf think she's telling us something profound? (laughs) No. Well, so yes, I do think that's a legitimate way of seeing... I do think it's true that this novel feels more serious and maybe more... it's certainly not as funny. I don't remember actually... And I noted the fact that I don't remember really laughing that much. Yeah, there were some things that I I laughed at, but I did I did I, I chuckled. I guess my only I did tear up a bit, you know, towards the end, just because yeah. a good. My only frustration romance, with the wolf thing we'll do is that. you're you're said that she's acting like she knows this to be true. Which right. Who knows? She what probably done. Yeah, but she's probably acting like she knows it to be true, as though she's come to some profound understanding of right. Austin when when. Anybody who's just thinking about the way that humans mature, right, know this about authors. She would have been more mature, yeah, as her she later became more mature. More mature. The better Tolstoy is, the later Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, wow. I guess, yeah. So certainly, yeah, you can see maturity. I don't think. I think you'd be hard pressed to name a humorist who doesn't become more world weary. And yes, yeah, I mean, you think about Mark Tom Twain. You think about Finn. you think about George Carlin. I don't know. Name name your favorite humorist. Most of them, as they as they mature, their humor sharpens into something different. And they get a sort of sadness and also a, a poetry to them as well, mm-hmm. whatever you want to say it is. I'm just thinking of some of the beautiful sections of Huckleberry Finn that right. you don't have in Tom Sawyer. Right. And that's because Huckleberry Finn is a more, more mature work. Mm-hmm. And Tom Sawyer is obviously are arguably guess, a funnier one. Yeah. And I guess in Virginia Woolf fashion, we say you hear, heard it here first, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're saying something groundbreaking. Well, it's a very influential essay. People, a lot of more recent Austin scholarship of the, of the 20th century certainly was based on that 
revelatory essay. Uh, so there's a lot of stupid critics. <laughs> In grad school, it was amazing how many people could have a profound revelation that's just like, mm-hmm. people have been thinking this for years. I don't know what you're saying, but okay, <laughs> thank you. You know who I did think was a pretty successful comic character in this one that made me laugh a little bit, or at least was made me chuckle with a recognition of people like this in my own life, was Mary. Austin must have had a thing against people named Mary. but Yeah. Uh, yeah. She must have had somebody in her life she hated. Mary Crawford, Mary Bennett. Yeah, now Mary Musgrove is, and they're all terrible. I really thought that part was cute where Elizabeth had to put up with the fact that everybody wanted to air their grievances about the other people yeah. when she was staying at the Musgroves. And so the husband would complain to her and then the wife would complain. And then the extended family, they would all be telling her what the problems were with the other people. And she couldn't do anything but be like, okay, yeah, great. That was pretty funny. I'm sorry. Yeah, she was a little, it was pretty farcical, the whole like, the number of times that Mary would just blatantly contradict herself in the same paragraph of dialogue. That may not be too or, farcical. Yeah, it didn't seem to. It felt ridiculous, but it felt like I know that person. I'm thinking of yeah. the part where she forgets that she's sick because she gets interested in something <laughs> yes. and just like walks across the room <laughs> and starts doing something. <laughs> yeah. I literally was dealing with a person exactly like that today. <laughs> I've been sick for days. Why haven't you come? Oh, I wasn't sick yesterday. Just this morning. (laughs) Right. (laughs) As she gets up and walks across the room to look out the window or whatever it was, yeah. Well, and she's pretty realistically nasty. Like when she decides she has to be the one I don't know how you can leave your kids with somebody for three days. Oh, you're going to bath for two weeks? Or, you know, it wasn't that, but you're going to Lyme for two weeks? Can I come? (laughs) Oh, you must I, not love it me. would be no hardship for the kids to stay with your mother. Right. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Louisa was also a pretty great character. Oh, yeah. How can we not talk about... Yeah, we need to talk about Louisa. We need to talk Louisa. about Jane Austen, the proto-feminist. <laughs> yeah. The great... proto-feminists deserve to be cracked about the head, <laughs> apparently. I'm going to write a girl who's going to give a speech about how no one can tell her what to do, and then someone, a man is going to try and tell her what to do, and she's not going to listen. And she, she's therefore going to fall and crack her head. <laughs> Almost die. (laughs) (laughs) Nearly die. And when she wakes up, she's going to have learned her lesson so thoroughly that she's just going to be... uh, She's going to become a lover of poetry. A mousy little... uh, Uh, She's going to fall in love with a... The mm, introverted poet. An introverted poet and completely change her entire... M.O. M.O. and personality to suit him. But they'll be happy together. Yeah, no. I think that they actually will. I, I like that part where... Somebody points out how they'll improve one another. Yeah, Anne's just like kind of laughing about it, but she's also just like, you know what? He'll become more cheerful. She'll become more serious. It'll, It'll be, be good, good for, for one another. Yep. Matches have been made. I don't remember. I think I might have the quote here. It's and a good she's, quote. She suddenly decides she loves Byron mm-hmm. just because she knows it'll please him. Mr. Har- or Captain Harville or whatever his name is, he's not a fan of that whole scenario, though. No, he's not. It, all, it has to do with how Benwick had quickly forgotten that. Written his sister. Yeah. Sigh no more, ladies, sigh no more. Men were deceivers ever. One foot on sea and one on shore. To one thing constant never. So sigh not so, but let them go and be you blithe and bonny, converting all your sounds of woe into hey, nonny, nonny. <laughs> here's, a, here's a good feminist quote. Anne wondered whether it had occurred to him now to question the justness of his own previous opinion as to the universal felicity and advantage of firmness of character, and whether it might not strike him that, 
like all other qualities of the mind, it should have its proportions and limits. She thought it could scarcely escape him to feel that a persuadable temper might sometimes be as much in favor of happiness as a very resolute character. (laughs) And then, calling that back, in his preceding attempts to attach himself to Louisa Musgrove, the attempts of angry pride, he protested that he had forever felt it to be impossible, that he had not cared, could not care for Louisa, though till that day, till the leisure for reflection which followed it, he had not understood the perfect excellence of the mind with which Louisa's could so ill bear a comparison or the perfect unrivaled hold it possessed over his own there, he had learnt to distinguish between the steadiness of principle and the obstinacy of self-will, between the darings of heedlessness and the resolution of a collected mind. There he had seen everything to exalt in his estimation the woman he had lost, and there begun to deplore the pride, the folly, the madness of resentment which had kept him from trying to regain her when thrown in his way. Ah. What was this phrase about steadiness of character versus... There he had learned to distinguish between the steadiness of principle and the obstinacy of self-will, between the darings of heedlessness and the resolution of a collected mind. That's what you should be looking for, guys. Lady with I mean, steadiness of he... principle and not obstinacy of... <laughs> suddenly he realized, wait a minute, Anne had steadiness of principle. Not She wasn't flighty. wasn't obstinacy of self-will that I want. How do you guys feel about Wentworth? He's fine. He's good. I, I would say of all of her heroes, he's the least interesting to me as a dude. She never really develops. Yeah, him. we just don't get to hang out with him very much. He doesn't, you know, like Darcy could could have been the same way, except that Darcy does five million awesome things to yeah. set things right once he realizes how wrong and feels responsible for them. And then we've been a little spoiled because Knightley and Emma, or and yeah, I mean, Edmund in the last books, those guys are really developed and you get to yeah, spend well, time with Knightley them. Yeah, and they it just plays rock. a big part of, I mean, he is the reason why Emma's redeemed. Right. Badly done, Emma. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Edmund is awesome. And when they just get moments like Edmund gets Fanny a horse or Knightley dances with Harriet because no one else, you know, you, yeah, you, you get, get all those kinds of moments. Like, oh, these guys are sweethearts and they're firm of character and they're awesome and we like yeah, them. Yeah. And what we learn is that Wentworth was always great mm-hmm. and he went off and did great things and proved himself to have been great. He struggles against his anger and resentment. But the most we see is that when stuff goes down, he turns and looks to Anne. Mm-hmm. And he's right to because Anne suddenly, Anne rises to the occasion. Yeah, they're both awesome. They are the two that rise to the occasion mm-hmm. and get stuff done and taken care of. Louise is alive because Anne and Wentworth rose to the occasion. She's the only one that had sense to say, uh, maybe get a doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> yes. What else, Anne? <laughs> that part felt a little chick flick, yeah. wish fulfillmenty. Like, yeah. oh, it's me, the audience surrogate character that gets to make all the cool decisions and have a level head. And I'm, it's fine, Jane. We can give Jane Austen a little wish fulfillment. I don't mind it. But but there are always. I mean, but that is true of people of character in that kind of situation keep their heads mm-hmm. and yeah sure it's a little wish fulfillment but the fact is it was a fine way to illustrate who's superior in this situation yeah no i i, I agree 100 percent. it just reminded me of of perhaps because i'm a shallow human being not because jane austen is it reminded me of certain rom-com sort of oh you know that show on showtime i've never watched it but it's called outlander or something it's with the nurse that goes back in time and she falls in love with the scotsman no well it's a show 
And ah. you got to you got to imagine in that show. I've not watched it again, but you can just imagine like she goes back in history. She's probably the one that like came up with the battle plan so that they could do the thing so that yeah, her yeah, Scotsman yeah. husband. Yeah, well, the different yeah the difference is that in all of those types of movies, there's no reason to believe right from their character that they would spring into action and do anything great. Why would Kara Knightley be fighting all these pirates at this point? Because we want to see Kira Knightley fight pirates. Right. But that's why she is the best. Because Knightley. <laughs> that's why Kira Knightley is the best. Because she fights for these pirates. And that's what we want to see. <laughs> that's right. Austin <laughs> understands character and understands people <laughs> unfailingly. And so it makes sense when her characters spring to action like that. She set them up. She's explaining. She's showing. She's demonstrating. It works. It's not just like... Mm-hmm. a plot convention i mean the incident may be a plot convention to demonstrate that but they're not doing it because she needs them to do that that's what they would do and the incident actually flows naturally out of the louise louise's character as written i mean it actually all feels pretty organic for an obvious for an obvious plot contrivance yeah i was shocked and surprised when it happened yeah I mean, it's the most certainly the most violent thing that ever happens in a jane austen novel yeah yeah i thought she was dead yep Yep, that would be something. There's that part in Sense and Sensibility where Eleanor uh, bashes the guy's skull in. Yes, there is that part. That's and the part in Northanger <laughs> Abbey where the woman's impaled on the chandelier. It's good stuff. Brandon, Pride and Prejudice. Darcy does tear Wickham's head from off his shoulders. Mm-hmm. That's a good moment. One of the cutscenes. And drinks his blood. And <laughs> drinks his blood. Uh, Brandon, yeah. Do you give the BSOA too? This novel. It's going to have to be a cliffhanger. It'll come back to me. <laughs> I got to think about it, Nathan. All right. I'll ask Jake. Jake, BSOA? Um, Booking seal of approval? The coveted? Well, I don't know. So far this year, what have we read? What have we read so far this year? <laughs> what was the other? Oh, the, Gatsby. the Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby, yeah. I've already forgotten. It's uncanny. It's uncanny. What's wrong with that? That's a weirdly, it's like he constructed that book to... Be forgotten. Be forgotten. Anyway. I don't know, man. Did we give Gatsby the BSOA? I don't even know if we asked about that. Sure. But yes. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Does it rise to the level of Gatsby? Uh, Think about the books we did all all last year. I don't know. Does it make Gatsby look like a flea-ridden donkey carcass? (laughs) would be a a better question. (laughs) And the answer would be yes. (laughs) Oh, man, it's not that bad. No, Gatsby's not that bad, but this is better. Yeah. Okay, you persuaded me. (laughs) Persuasion. Hashtag persuasion. So, Brandon, you're going to give a BSOA to this thing? Of course. Nobody was even... There was no suspense. Yeah, it's like Charles Elliott coming on stage. Nobody really questioned my opinion. Or like Charles Wallace. I mean, let's be honest. If if this were the only book that Austin had ever written, we wouldn't care so much about it. Are you saying you're not going to give it the BSOA? No, of course it gets the BSOA. Oh, Brennan, without thinking, yeah, without taking any time. Oh my goodness, I know what you're going to do. Rank the Jane Austen novels. Uh without thinking. Uh, with the ones we've read. Yeah, the ones we've read. Okay, yeah. I can like which ones am I most likely going to Okay, without thinking. Pride and Prejudice? Yes, sir. Mansfield Park? Emma? Interesting. Jake, without thinking, rank the Jane Austen novels that we've read. By what standard? Just I just used which woman am I most likely to go back to? Yeah, Pride no and Prejudice thinking. is number one. And no, no thinking, no thinking. I, I, I. It's hard to say. Um, 
Well, look, I still have hangups about Emma, and I'm sure it'd be different going back to it, but I just did not enjoy the first so part of bottom. that book. Mansfield Park is slow and difficult, so it's your but three. rewarding. So it's okay, Persuasion's so it's, easy and light and fun. I'm going to tell you his order. Okay. Pride and Prejudice, Persuasion, Mansfield Park, Emma. Fine. It, in that order that you gave it, the reason is because Pride and Prejudice is easiest to go back and read, to have fun yeah. with, and to get great value out of. Persuasion is the second easiest to read. It's not, it's the least value, like valuable, right? Nutritious. Rank them in order of nutrition. Mansfield Park, Emma, Pride and Prejudice, Persuasion. I think that's true. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Uh, And that might actually be my order of preference too. What did you say? Mansfield Park, Emma. Actually, my order of preference, honestly. Gosh, is this true? I don't know. It's going to be Emma first. Yeah, it would be Emma. Emma's far and away my favorite, actually. I really love that novel. Uh, I just, I mean, Mr. Knightley is so cool. Um, I thought Mansfield Park was your favorite. Well, it is too. I think it would be Emma, Mansfield Park, Pride and Prejudice, Persuasion, uh, both in order of enjoyment. Although Mansfield Park is a bit of a slog. It's a slog. But man, it is rewarding. It's super rewarding. But I should say my top three are like 0.01. Degrees of separation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I still say that Pride and Prejudice, Prejudice is actually the clear-cut top. You can ask me which one I'm going to give to, like, a frat boy. Sure, <laughs> Pride and Prejudice. Gave, well, it's the one you gave to me. <laughs> Jake, I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> then I encouraged you to come on a podcast and read all of them because I thought you'd have good things to say about all of them. So there. <laughs> but, but yes, who, what, what's going to be my gateway drug? Pride and Prejudice, sure. Yeah. It's funny. It's it kicks everything. into gear the quickest. It's Elizabeth is the most likable hero heroine. Of, heroine of them, and it's just fun. But it's not. I wouldn't say for me personally, it it's is. It fun, is actually it's my favorite. Funny no. and it's valuable. I think there's good argument to be made that Emma is her best book. Yeah. Well, we'll have, that's why we're going to read them again. So we'll see if Jake yeah, hits that one I differently. I expect I'll hit it very differently on the second time too. I mean, yeah, hitting it the second time, it was really solidified as maybe my favorite. I think it's. I, th- I actually think it's moving. I mean, it reminds me of my own bad childhood and of people that have helped me grow and stuff. I don't know. Amazing scene in the. Well, you already referenced it. Badly done. Mm-hmm. Knightley's her best hero. Yeah, yeah. And Pride and Prejudice, as wonderful as it is, it's just a little bit maybe. I mean, again, we're talking degrees of perfection here, but it, Darcy's a little bit underdeveloped as a hero and. It's great. I mean, Pride and Prejudice is a perfect novel. Pride and Prejudice is a perfect story in a way that maybe none of them are, uh, just in terms of being a page turner. But being a page turner just isn't what I look for anymore at this point in my life. I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe it never was. It's me. all I look for. It's all Brandon looks for. Well, you know what I'm saying. I'm not saying you guys are dumb for liking it. It's Pride and Prejudice. Everyone should like it. If there's one, I, I would be willing to probably still, say if there's one Jane Austen novel everyone should read, it's Pride and Prejudice, both as a, as a cultural touchstone, as a fun novel, and as something that's full of wisdom and awesomeness. Well, I told you my my ranking was based on which am I more likely to go back to. Right. And I put Mansfield Park where I did because uh, Thomas Bertram. Right. In my stage of life, he was just, it was a moving story. Mm-hmm. Somebody would go back and rewrite that last chapter of Mansfield Park. You could probably bump it up a couple notches. Yep. Let's do it. Do it. Do it. Yeah, we haven't done that in a while. Maybe I feel like I represent more the average reader. Oh, I think you do. And I cling very much to the C.S. Lewis principle of if you're going to write something, it has to first be enjoyable to read. And that's why 
I, I can't ever take that out as a, as a higher ranking factors for me. Because fact is, I don't have as much to benefit from Pride and Prejudice as I do from going back to Mansfield Park, but I'm more likely to go back on my own. If we didn't have this podcast, mm-hmm. I'd be more likely to go back on my own and reread Pride and Prejudice than Mansfield Park, even though I'd have much more to gain personally for myself, for my family, to go back and reread Mansfield Park. But Pride and Prejudice is fun, and Mansfield Park is not fun. And that factors that's going to factor into those kinds of decisions. And yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you do. And I don't think, I think you represent the common man probably more than I do. And that's fine. You don't feel bad. No, but we're, we're all right. We're all, I mean, honestly, like we're just talking about opinions here. I think for me, the other Emma passes the C.S. Lewis test more than Pride and Prejudice. It's a much funnier novel for me personally, maybe not for a lot of people. I've talked to more than one person that's been defeated by Emma. So I take it you probably do represent the common man, but I'm not the common man. I'm a weird podcast host. So you're not the common man. No, (laughs) you're the Superman. I'm the Superman. I'm the Ubermensch. (laughs) So what can I say? I just like sophisticated things, baby. Um, No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I'm Uh different. People are different. What's the problem, Brandon? I like Emma. I, I thought Mansfield Park was entertaining. I, f- I think Raymond Chandler's entertaining. Some people can't read Raymond Chandler. They think stupid Agatha Christie's in- entertaining. I think Agatha Christie's trash. People have different opinions, okay? Is that okay with you, Brandon? I'm fine with that, Nathan. Okay. Day was written and produced by Nathan and Brandon and Jake were here and said wonderful things, more wonderful things than Jane Austen ever said. Better believe it. Come at me, bro. Brandon is the Jane Austen of context. Jake is the Jane Austen of being a panelist on a podcast, and I'm the Jane Austen of hosting. And if you want to be the Jane Austen of contributing money, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the booking in honor of jane austen give 800 dollars, which is equivalent to about 800 pounds which she would have earned off some of her books that sounds like a plan 